Good morning. I'm glad to see all of you here this morning. If you've been with us, um, we've been in our series covering the book of Romans, and um, we, we kind of covered what I would call part two last week. It was verses 5 through 17, so we're going to cover verses 18 through 30 today. And um, last week, we, we talked about, or, or Paul talks about, um, kind of in this introduction to suffering and exactly um, what suffering is for. And he says in verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so we learn through that that our suffering is often God's way of drawing us ever closer to himself. And so last week, if, if you still have your notes, maybe you keep notes in a notebook, um, you could head last week's sermon, Why We Suffer, okay? And then this week, you could probably head it, How We Suffer, because Paul kind of continues on this thread of suffering and he explains how we can endure suffering with patience. And so, as I read verses 18 through 30, I ask that you would have your Bibles open with me and be looking along. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that I would preach it with clarity this morning, with truth that I would empty anything about myself that wants to make this self-serving, that wants to make this relevant to something that it's not, but I pray that you would remove any of those thoughts and tendencies from me, that what is spoken, what is heard, what is understood would simply be the truth of your word. I pray that we would hear it that way and receive it that way and live and use it moving forward in that way. 
We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we started off last week by defining a term we talked about when it says in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh. And we kind of um, defined that, that term or that phrase. So we're going to start by doing the same thing this week. Um, we've actually defined the term glory before. Um, we did a series about a year and a half ago. And I'll be honest, I have no clue if it was on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. But we did a series where we uh, talked about glory and we talked about how God's glory is his holiness on display, his holiness in verb form. Now, to be holy is to be set apart. It, it doesn't even necessarily to mean different, but to be unlike, to be uncomparable to anything else. That's what holy means. And so God's glory is that holiness put on display, that holiness, what I would call made sensible. Now, I don't mean sensible like logical, but rather sensible as in it can be picked up by our senses, okay? Think about this. God does offer his glory, okay? We know that. We've read that in scripture. But what that means is that God created our five senses, touch, smell, vision, hearing, taste, because those are the ways he wanted us to be able to perceive and receive his glory. Think about that for a second. So when you touch anything, when you smell anything, when you see something, when you hear something, when you taste something, are you doing it to receive and perceive the glory of God so that you can turn around and use that for his worship? Everything in creation was created for the glory and praise and honor of Christ. Everything is for his glory. And if his glory is truly perceived by his creation, creation has no choice but to honor and obey and worship him because of who he is. That's why it says in Romans 1 that we studied several weeks ago that those who are not believers suppress truth and live in darkness. Because when something is hidden, when something is in the dark, you can't see it. You can't sense it. But when the glory of God is sensed, we have no choice. We are helpless but to honor and glorify him for who he is. And so when we talk about glory, keep that in mind. It's God's holiness put on display. So verse 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is glory that, as we read last week in verse 17, we will share, we will share with him when we go to be with him one day. And so even though it has not been revealed to us yet, it will be, and it is more than enough to sustain us through anything that we may endure. And there's no exceptions made here. It's through anything. It's greater than any suffering of any kind. And actually in Revelation chapter four and five, which is we just covered um, chapter four with um, our youth on Wednesday nights, and I didn't plan that timing out. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. But... Um, it talks about that glory 
It talks about the, the vision that John sees in, the, in this vision when he's called up to heaven and he sees God on the throne and he sees the heavenly beings around the throne worshiping him. And there's, um, he, he says it's like thunder and lightning and, and rumblings of, of majesty and splendor. We see that picture of God's glory. I would love to um, go through that with you right now, but we don't have the time. But I encourage you to go read Revelation 4 and 5 to just get a glimpse. It's just a, a symbolism of the glory that we will one day share in. But we see that this glory is far greater than anything we go through here and now. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We see here that creation is personified, meaning it's almost given these human characteristics. It says that it was subjected to futility, to futility, not willingly. Well, how can creation do anything willingly? How can the mountains will something? They can't, okay? And then it says they were subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free, okay? Mountains, trees can't hope for anything. And then it says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, kind of waiting for this redemption. So creation is personified. And in these verses, um, we, we see that at the fall of man, it was subjected to futility, to bondage and corruption. And so I want us to look at some examples of how the creation changed at the fall of Adam and Eve. So I want you to turn to um, Genesis chapter 3 for me, and we're going to read verses 16 through 19 and just see two very clear examples of how creation, but more specifically, God's creation of mankind changed because of the fall. Genesis 3 verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, we're not going to go into detail about um, the, the dynamic shift that occurs here between the, in the relationship of a husband and a wife, but know that it's there. It's important, okay? But what we're going to talk about is these individual changes, or, or you could call them curses, that God gives both to Adam and to Eve. And to Eve, he talks about how there will be a great pain in childbearing. And then to Adam, he talks about this great pain and this um, very, very hard work and this toil that he will have to put into working the ground, to providing. 
Why would God be this specific? I'm a, I'm a people studier. I, um, I, I just kind of watch people interact, not like a stalker, you know, at night outside your window. But when I'm around people in a normal setting, I watch people interact. I, I like to kind of sit back and just look. And now that I've kind of freaked you out and you're not going to talk to me anymore, one thing I've observed is that in many married couples, and this is Christian and non-Christian alike, there is one thing that wives really struggle not to put above their husbands, and that is their children. And there is one thing that men really struggle not to put above their wives, and that is their work. Some of y'all just gave me a look. But God created men with a nature to be a provider. God created women with a nature to be the nurturer, and those are not bad things. Those are righteous. They're different, but they're equal. They are both equally needed. That doesn't mean women cannot provide. It doesn't mean men can't be nurturing, but that's this different nature that God created, and both are needed. God gave Adam Eve and Eve Adam because they needed each other. But when sin entered, these tendencies, these natures were taken to an extreme. And so this pain that Eve is now going to have in childbearing, this pain that Adam is now going to have working the ground are kind of representations of the difficulty that is created now moving forward when these things are taken to an extreme because of sin. And these are just two examples, clear examples given in Scripture of how the creation completely changed at the fall. And so I wanted us to see that. Creation is hoping and longing for the day when this bondage of corruption will no longer exist, when it will be set free. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It talks about having the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning that there are, are many benefits um, that Scripture tells us about, that we have by having the Spirit with us at all times. But it doesn't mean that it perfects everything. A great example of this is that through suffering, we have peace and hope that the rest of the world doesn't have, but we still have suffering. Do you get what I'm saying? It, we do have benefits of the Spirit. The Spirit helps us and sustains us and holds us in many ways, but it doesn't mean that things have been perfected yet. The Bible tells us that that, tells us that, that is coming, but it has not yet. And then in verses 24 and 25, it uses the word hope five times. That word used there, that Greek word used is elpis, which means, quote, an expectation of what is certain to come. That's not how we use hope very often. 
We use it like, I hope my bonus check is as much as it was last year, or I hope I made as good of a grade on this or a better grade on this test than I did on the last one. We use it almost like there's some uncertainty or anxiety involved. But that's not how Paul uses it. Paul uses it in certainty. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. This is why Paul, as it says in verse 25, could wait with patience. The reason you and I so often live impatiently is because our version of hope isn't this version of hope. Our version of hope is filled with uncertainty. It's filled with anxiety. Therefore, we have to constantly be running ourselves to death, trying to do everything we can to make sure that the right things happen. But Paul could endure being questioned, his past being brought up, being shunned and ostracized and beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and beheaded. And he could do it all with patience because his hope was certain. What was promised for him was not a matter of if, it was just a matter of when. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, in, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So these first fruits that we're, we, we have that we've talked about continue to just pile up. God continues to give us these promises, these covenants. And what it tells us here is that even when, when we're so overwhelmed with whatever may be going on that we can't even get words out. I, I've had moments at this altar sometimes where I've knelt down right here and not a word could come out of my mouth. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know where to start. I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know the words to use. But in those moments, I can't explain it. In the depths of my soul, I could feel like God knew everything that I didn't know to say. Maybe we can't speak because what the Holy Spirit is saying on our behalf is far beyond words. Because our, our words would kind of dumb it down. Because often we don't know what we need. But the Spirit does. And it does according to the will of God. And it intercedes on our behalf. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I believe that Romans 8:28 is one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, mispreached verses in scripture because there are pastors that have made themselves millions of dollars by preaching this verse the wrong way. They'll tell you that when it talks about God working things together for good, you're going to get that great job. You're going to get that new car. Your sick family member is going to make it. Your marriage is not going to fail. 
And then those things happen and people abandon the faith because the Bible lied to them. When in reality, the Bible didn't lie to them. That pastor who wanted his new car and his fancy house and his great job lied to them. We went over at the beginning how we read in verses 16 and 17 last week that the way we can be most like Christ, the way that we can be glorified with him, share in his glory is that we suffer as he did. It's the way that he makes us most like himself and can draw us closest to himself. And think about what good is. If God is who he says he is, what's the greatest good he could ever give you? Himself. That's the greatest good that a loving God who, if he is who he says he is, that's the greatest good that a loving God could give you is himself. And so follow that logic with me. Not only does this verse not mean that everything in our lives is going to be fun and great and wonderful all the time, but it almost guarantees us suffering because if that's the way we can be most like Christ, we can be most drawn to Christ and be closest to him, that is the greatest good he could give us. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who are called according to his purpose, he is ever drawing you closer to himself. And that often comes through suffering. We have to know that. We have to. It's not questionable. We have to. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The word for foreknew literally just means to know beforehand. It's not very different, but that kind of leaves us questioning something here. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, well, an all-knowing, all-sovereign God foreknew everyone. So is he drawing everyone closer to himself all the time? Considering that we all are aware that there are people in hell right now, I think that answer is no. So we're kind of left wondering, okay, what does it mean when he foreknew? And if we read... If we were to read just a couple chapters in advance in Romans chapter 11, verse two, it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So this is not, I believe, not referring to God's foreknowledge of just someone's existence, but his foreknowledge, his predestining of someone being his chosen people. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, listen to this language, pay attention closely. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you haven't figured it out in this um, series yet, Paul is very intentional with everything that he says. And in verse 30, I see no gaps. 
I see no language like, and those whom he predestined that were willing to listen, he also called. And those whom he called that answered the call, he also justified. And those who kept their justification, whom he justified, he also glorified. I see no language like that. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. It's clear to me, and I think we'll see more of this in chapter nine that we'll get to in the next few weeks, that this really doesn't depend very much on us. It is the work and the will of God, and I don't see, I, I have yet to read anywhere in Scripture where the will of God is disobeyed or undermined or undone. The will of God seems to kind of reign over everything from what I read, and it's clear to me what this says. So knowing all that, knowing the true, clear, full sovereignty of God. Here's what I leave you with. How do we suffer? We suffer with hope, but not the hope that we so often live with. The true God-given, Christ-fulfilling hope that is full of no doubt, that is full of only certainty, it's not a matter of if our bodies will be redeemed or if we will share in his glory. It is a matter of when. And when we suffer like that, we can go through whatever we may go through patiently. Doesn't mean there won't be tears. It doesn't mean it won't be painful. But we can go through it patiently knowing that the glory we will share in is infinitely greater and beyond anything we may go through now. So my application is simple. To the God who holds everything in his hands from your salvation to your sanctification to your suffering and everything else, ask him to renew your mind and teach you to live with true hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the true hope that it brings us. I pray that you'll teach us and you'll rewire our minds to live with that hope, to not live wondering if you're working for us, to not live wondering if your glory is being carried out, if you are being honored for who you are, but rather give us a certainty that everything that is happening is happening according to your will for your glory. It has extreme, infinite, eternal purpose, even when we can't see it. Help us to live with that hope today that it produces patience in us, that even in our suffering, even in our lowest moments, we can continue pushing forward for your honor and praise that you so righteously deserve. Forgive us of every way that we fail you. Forgive us of all the times that we have tried to live with this false hope, with this anxious hope, and change that in us this morning. I pray these things in your son, Jesus Christ's name.